Welcome to the Clovercrest Baptist Church podcast. For more information about Clovercrest Baptist Church, go to clovercrest.com.au. Amen. Well, today is our final week sitting in the book of Romans. We're bringing to a conclusion um, the idea of looking at our restored belief and how that affects us and causes us to live in a restored way. And I want to start by asking, what are the things that you argue about? What are the things that you fight about with your friends and family? Stephen's family, we argue about what's for dinner. I wonder if there's anyone else that gets complaints at home, maybe online or in the room, you can relate to this. When people ask, you know, what's for dinner and you say what it is, like, oh, I don't like that, or that's disgusting, I don't want to eat that. I have decided for the last few years, this is what we do, when someone in our house says what's for dinner, the answer I always give is something yummy. That's all they get. So they don't know until it literally arrives on their plate where they're seated and they have to eat it. So every day, what's for dinner? something yummy. Even that's all that Mike gets. What's for dinner? Something yummy. But the arguments continue because we have a bit of a roster. I like to be an organised person and I'll do like a a two-week meal planning. And as I put sort of, you know, various menus on the meal, there's certain things that Mike or the kids will request to be on rotation, things that they like to have more of and things they dislike. And this can be a source of tension and argument. And one of the things I want to mention, and maybe get some feedback here today on, is burritos, right? The kids and I love burritos. Mike, nah, not interested in burritos. I just want to know, online, raise a hand and in the room, same thing. Who thinks we should have burritos on the rotation? All right, you guys are all coming for dinner. I like you over here. Yeah, come on. Burritos should definitely be on the rotation. But this is... Yeah, 20%. Well, they're coming for dinner. I like that 20%. But this can be a source of argument, what we should have on the rotation, what we should eat. Now, to be honest, Mike is very gracious and kind and appreciates that a meal is made for him, so he doesn't actually complain. But he could get really angry about the fact that we're eating burritos and even refuse to eat and go and eat his own meal. And this is what I wanted us to think about this what can happen when arguments start and disagreements start as we dive into Romans 15. Because what Paul is doing here, he's not talking about menu planning or burritos, but he is talking about agreements, uh, disagreements, not agreements, disagreements and problems where there's tension and arguments that are occurring and what we can actually do to bring unity. Because what we find with both the Jews and the Gentiles is there was these disagreements going on, not over what to eat. In fact, the chapter earlier that Dub preached about last week was about what to eat. It was about purity laws and food laws. If you haven't watched that, I encourage you to jump online and watch that. But really around these disagreements, and in a sense, the what to eat was kind of a surface level disagreement. It was more about what was going on underneath. See, the Jews, they were like, we're the chosen ones, so we're superior. And the Gentiles, they were like, well, there's more of us, so we feel like we've got a bit of arrogance here and we have our own rights. And these feelings and responses to each other, if they weren't suddenly called out and caught and changed the risk was that it was going to cause disunity in the church. And this is where we find Paul today, and he's speaking of the threat 
that the unity of the church is going to be damaged. And so I want us to consider what we can learn as God's people today in how Paul writes this. I'm going to read from Romans 15, starting in verse 1. You've got your Bibles or your phones. You might want to jump and read along with me. Otherwise, it will be on the screens. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see in these verses that Paul is calling the Roman church to more. He's calling them to unity, to find common ground and to work together. And what we see is that in these verses, he actually describes what this unity should look like. Verse 1, he says, the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. The idea of showing care and serving the other. Verse 2, he talks about pleasing our neighbour, putting the other first. There's humility when we do that. And verse 2 continues to build others up. There's encouragement and love. And verse 7, accept one another just as Jesus did, this embrace and inclusion. These are the descriptions that Paul is calling them to, what it should look like to be living a life of unity. I wonder, do we look like this? I wonder, Clovey, do we look like this? If someone was to write some descriptive words of us, would they be words of care and humility and encouragement and love and embrace? I wonder if we celebrate that that's who we are. I wonder if... As we mention these words, there's a few that we think, I've probably got a little way to go on that one. Because that's the description that Paul is giving. I wonder what we can notice and learn today. But I want to actually go a little bit deeper in this passage. I don't want to just stay looking at what should we look like. I actually want to look a little bit deeper to the core of what is it that helps us actually develop and grow in unity. Because in this passage, Paul really hints around two ideas that at the core of unity, we need a foundation and we need transformation. He hints at this idea that for the Jews and Gentiles to come together and work together, they need a good foundation and they need a transformation. And the same too is true for us today. If we're going to be God's church united, we need the right foundation and we need transformation. 
And so the first thing is this foundation. The foundation that we need for unity is God's word and God's ways. See, Paul, in the way he writes, he reminds the people this idea of being unified wasn't Paul's idea. It's God's idea. It's God's plan A. God wrote this in his word. And Paul, interestingly, he wants to quote the Old Testament. He looks back around the scriptures and he uses three different parts of the scriptures to really reinforce, guys, this was God's plan. The word teaches us this. Actually, what Paul does, he quotes Deuteronomy, the law. He quotes Isaiah, the prophets, and he quotes the Psalms, the writings, to really reinforce God's plan, God's word, God's way is clear that he wanted us to be united. Let me read it again and point out where these come from. From verse 9, it says, As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. That's verse from um, a verse in Psalms. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. That's from Deuteronomy. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah, from Isaiah, says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will have hope. See, Paul is showing that the Gentiles will be the ones that praise God. The Gentiles are included in this unity. They belong. They've got a place. And the Jews are needed and important. The root of Jesse, that Jesus came from the line of the Jews. Both are needed. Both are part of it. And Paul's wanting to say by reinforcing, using the Old Testament scripture, it's not his idea It's God's word. That is the foundation for this unity. That is why it matters. It's God's plan, his plan A, to bring all people together under him. And that needs to be our foundation, his word, for the decisions for how we behave, how we treat one another. But also God's ways. Paul uses Jesus' example, the living person of God, to show us this foundation for unity. Verse 3, Christ did not please himself. Verse 7, Christ has accepted you. And verse 8, Christ has become a servant. We see Jesus' role model what it looks like to live a life of unity with others, of humility, of putting other people first. And Paul points us back to Jesus and says, look at how Jesus did it. He took on our burdens. He put others first. He welcomes and embraces all. So this foundation for unity, this foundation for how we are to behave for both the Jews and Gentiles and for us today is God's word and God's ways. That's how we know how to behave. What does that look like for us? This foundation for how we behave, how we treat one another, the decisions, the values we make, the the call is for that foundation to be God's word and God's ways. But I wonder for us today, is God's word vital to your life? Is his scripture essential for your being? Is it core to what you do and who you are? Do you read it every day? Are you looking to the word of God to know how to treat someone else, to how to step towards the other, to show unity? Are you actually opening up his word? Because in his word is where we get to know his character, his heart, his plans, what he wants for us. I would encourage you that if his word isn't part of your everyday patterns, and we can learn a lot from Leah and our Clovey Kids Gang, making Jesus part of our everyday life. If it's not, why don't you download the YouVersion app, the Bible app on your phone? 
Why don't you start reading a plan today? Why don't you set an alarm on your phone? It has never been easier to make reading the Bible part of our automatic rhythm. We have so many devices that can help us. Is the Word of God vital to your life? Because that's what I want it to be for all of us. But not just the Word of God, the ways of Jesus. Is Jesus your ultimate role model? Is it his ways that you're looking to and going, I want to be like that. I want to live like that. Because that is the call to make Jesus' ways him our role model. And our issues and our disagreements, they're going to look different. The Jews and Gentiles, that was unique, yeah, for them and their tension between them. For us, it might look different today in the church. The risks that we have for disunity might be a whole lot different. Maybe it's our theology. Maybe it's around what we believe God is saying. Maybe it's our ecclesiology, what we think the church should or shouldn't be doing. Maybe it's culture, popular opinion. Whatever the risk is for us to have tension and disunity, the challenge is to make the foundation God's word and God's ways. That as we stand on him and his word and his role model, that is how we step towards each other. That is how we live. And I actually think for some today, that's a really significant word. That if you're honest, the foundation for how you treat others and how you're living your life and the values that you have isn't God's word and ways. If you're honest, your foundation is something else right now. I believe today is a moment where we can actually say, I want to get that right. I want to stand my life on God's word and ways because nothing else matters. Let me be honest, everything else that we can lay our life on and ground ourselves on will fail us and let us down. But God's word and God's ways stand true. It just works. What does it look like to make God's word and God's ways our foundation? Paul then goes on and talks about the second key to to seeing unity is not only foundation, but then transformation. Unity comes through transformation. We need the Holy Spirit to do a powerful work in us. And Paul speaks in verse 5 around this deeper transformation that is required to really see a life of unity. Let me read. It says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. See, we need a transformed mind in order to be able to think like Jesus. Now, if you remember back in the sermon Ash preached on Romans 12, Romans 12, 2, Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul's already talked about this idea we need our minds to be transformed. But now in chapter 15, he's really speaking to that our minds need to be transformed in how we see others, that our minds need to be that of Christ in how we think about others, because our minds really matter. You know, how we think, it affects how we feel and then it affects how we behave. Same for the Jews and Gentiles, how they thought about each other would affect how they felt towards each other and then how they treated each other. Same for our relationships today, how we think affects how we feel and affects how we behave. Now, recently I spoke on a camp at Victor Harbour Baptist to the youth camp there. There was about 50 teenagers there and it was a wonderful weekend, such a privilege to communicate with these young people and see them worshipping and growing in their faith. 
and as all good teenage camps have, there was a whole lot of shenanigans, there was late night pranks, there was games and messy games, I got messy, there was cheating teenagers, there was noisy teenagers, there was craziness all hours of the night. And I've got to say, I had all the patience in the world with these 50 teenagers. You see, I thought of them as young people that needed to know and grow in the love of God. I saw them as people who needed to be discipled. And so I felt love and compassion and grace towards them. And so I behaved like, doesn't matter if you cheat or make me messy or you're cheeky, because it's great, good to be together. Now, if that same behaviour happened in my house with my teenagers, if there was late night shenanigans, cheating at games, mess and cheekiness, can I just say, I would be thinking, you're naughty, do better. I would be feeling, I'm so sick of you, this is disgusting and wrong and I'm angry. And I would behave like, you guys all are going to bed, we're done, it's over. How we think about someone affects how we feel and how we behave. And I just wonder, while life isn't a full-on youth camp every day, sad, I know, because I would love life to be a youth camp, the reality is how we see people affects how we feel and how we treat them. If we were to see people as Jesus did, if we were to think on them as people who need the love of God, people who need to know how our God is so good, if we were to think of people as people that Jesus loves and cares for, just as he treats them, if we were to see them in that way, it would affect how we feel about them and it would affect how we treat them. I wonder, how do you think about people? How do you feel about people? How do you treat others? Because if we get this right, if our minds are transformed, then it has wonderful potential for unity in the church and beyond to make a massive difference. If we think on people, if the Holy Spirit transforms our minds so we see people as Jesus does. I want us to take a moment right now and close our eyes, whether you're online or in the room, just to close your eyes. And I want you to picture someone that you don't see eye to eye with. I want you to picture someone that you really struggle to get along with. Even kids, you can do this. Maybe you picture someone at school or a teacher or mum or dad or sibling. For all of us to picture someone it's hard to get along with. And now I want you to picture that person as Jesus does. Because he sees them as valuable and loved and significant. Picture them as he does. They are loved by God just as much as you or I. They're extended grace by God just as much as you and I. They're forgiven by God just as much as you and I. They're chosen, they're accepted, they're adopted into his family just as much as you and I. Picture them as Jesus sees them. Loved, significant, valuable. Now open your eyes. Picturing people as Jesus sees them, choosing to think on people as Jesus thinks about them, has the potential to change how we feel towards them and how we're going to behave. That has a flow-on effect. When the Holy Spirit transforms our mind, that is going to bring us to a place of unity. That is going to help us step towards one another. Now, I recognise it's not a quick fix. 
It's not a click your fingers and we're all cruisy. And I know there's some relationships where there's deep harm. And so there's a process of healing required. But it is a choice how we choose to think about people. Our thoughts affect our feelings and our behaviour. And as we participate with the Holy Spirit, he will do a work and transform our minds to the minds of Christ. Unity comes through getting our foundation right and transformation. Foundations in God's word and ways and transformation by the Holy Spirit. But why is this so important? Why does it really matter? Why is Paul going on about it? We see that in verse 6 and 7. It says, So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in order to bring praise to God. See, once we put aside our disagreements, our difference of opinion, and we put aside these arguments, then our mouths are free to do what really matters. Praise God. Then we're actually free to focus on what really matters. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. We don't want little robots of each other. And a difference of opinion can be good to teach and grow and stretch us. But it's that unity of purpose Holding on to God's word and ways, unity of purpose will then transcend these minor differences. And then we can keep the main thing, the main thing, which is praising our God and telling everyone else how good he is, because that is what we are here to do. Douglas Moo says, unity is one stage on the way to the church's final purpose, to praise God. That's what we're here to do, to praise him, worship him, honour him. And when we're busy with disagreements, we can get stuck here. But the call is to have unity of purpose, the foundation of God's word and ways. Let the Holy Spirit transform us so we can praise God and do what really matters. Let's get our foundations right. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to transform us. Paul brings this section and really the overarching ideas to a close in verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen a champagne tower. I was trying to recreate one and look, I made a whole lot of mess at home with water, by the way. It was just an absolute mess. But this idea that you have a champagne cup, a glass, and then a stack, there's a tower of them. And the top one gets filled with the champagne and it flows over into the next glass and the next glass and the next glass. You'll see there's a picture on the screen behind me of the start of a champagne tower. This idea that the first glass gets full to overflowing and then it trickles down and just this beautiful big cascade, a bit like a fountain. This is the picture that I have in mind when I sit in that verse and and part of Romans. This idea that God longs to fill our cup. To fill our cup with his goodness, with who he is, with a restored belief that we might know him, know what he's done for us. These truths we've been reading in Romans. As he fills our cup, he fills it with joy. He fills it with peace. He fills it with His presence and then He fills it to overflowing that it just can't help but pour out of us. And that's how we start to see this restored living. We have a restored belief. Our cup is full and this then affects how we live and it affects the community around us. It overflows the joy, the peace, the goodness of God that He fills our lives with. It can't help but have an impact in those around us. That 
is I believe part of the picture that Paul is wanting us to grasp, that we allow God's Spirit to fill us. And then that overflows, that goodness. That is the invitation that every one of us has to have a restored belief, to know our God personally, and then to live a restored life that it just makes a difference everywhere we go. Let's pray.